Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. And we're rolling. And Lou. Hey guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the ongoing SAG-AFTRA strike. Um, SAG-AFTRA is the Screen Actors Guild and American Federation of Television and Radio Actors. You know, the people you know in... TV and movies from the silver screen, all the stars, they have a union and they're on strike against the movie and television industry and the major studios, your Warner Brothers, Netflix's, Disney's at all. Some of you might recall that just a couple months ago, we had an episode on the writer's strike, um, which is still ongoing against the very same studios that we're talking about today. And there will be a lot of familiar themes, I think, on today's episode as to, you know, what these issues are that these actors are striking over and, you know, the response they've gotten from the studios. I I, I think the place to start today's discussion is just a bit of an overview of, you know, why are the actors on strike? You know, because their issues are similar to the writers, but different and unique. And, you know, these are not just the same circumstances. Yeah, they're, they're similar and overlapping circumstances. But writers, given that they are producing the, the stories and everything for movies and television, um, the actors are the ones actually performing that. So the root causes, though, are the same. They are concerned about the use of artificial intelligence. In the case of writers and in the case of actors, the use of their image in future project projects without their consent. Um, right now, there's the circumstance is that actors are are being coerced into signing contracts that give the studios access to their image or and our voice in perpetuity. So for all time, we have the ability to use your face, uh, put it on a computer generated model of something, and that's going to be the actor. And you're not going to get paid for that because we own your image now. The that That's like a big one. Uh, the other thing that they're concerned about is the same thing writers are concerned about, residuals from streaming. Right now, you don't get really paid anything for streaming because nobody knows for sure how much something is streamed. Um, typically, in the past, every time a sh- an episode of a TV show or a movie aired on network television or cable, you got paid for that show. Right now with streaming, the streaming companies like Amazon, Netflix, Hulu are very cagey about how many people actually show or actually view their thing. Um, Similar with how Facebook was inflating its numbers too, without having any proof behind how many people are viewing this. Amazon and Netflix and Hulu are 
invested in not being very transparent because on the one hand they want to tell investors that everybody is watching our stuff all the time but the flip side of that is they don't want to pay actors writers what they're owed for for viewing that content that they didn't create they just licensed to show so very similar problems but just different sides of it i I, I have to say I'm I'm a little bit offended by hearing the name Facebook. I I think that company is called Meta. Oh my bad, sorry. Well, at, at the time when it was in the deep doo-doo, it was known as Facebook. So I guess now that it's known as Meta, uh, it's it's a completely different company. Side note: that's my conspiracy theory on why Elon changed the name of Twitter to X so that he can like say, "Oh, we're a different company. We don't owe you things." But that's the completely side note. He, he would think that that's possible. But anyway, the the thing, I think one great example of this, which came kind of completely out of left field for me, was the writer and actor, Canadian writer and actor, Sugath Varghese, Varghese, he posted online about, so if you know who this is, you probably don't, but if you do know who this is, it's probably because he was the acting secretary general on like season six of the expanse or whatever, or season five. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. The point is he revealed that he's been a writer for like 40 years and he worked on Fraggle Rock, the, the Henson company series. And that for 30 or so years, he was living partly off residuals from that while working on other shows, because that's the thing about residuals. They tied you over when you're not actively working. If you're an actor, we all know this, uh, if you live through the 2000s, we had the years of Jude Law, we had the years of Dennis Quaid, when like certain actors were just in every movie for like four or five years. There's all those endless jokes, although they're in a different union, of how there are only 30 British actors allowed to work at any given time, and, and they just kind of rotate in and out as it goes. Residuals are meant to help you when you can't do that, when your career has a down year, when you're in one of the like 100 different age-related low spots in your career that Hollywood executives just arbitrarily decide are the case. And he revealed that that for decades he'd been getting a steady paycheck from that, and then as soon as things went to streaming, there went the money. There are many, many actors who have uh, posted in a very similar uh, way to um, minor league baseball players, have posted their paychecks from residuals, I think the CNN article that we read in preparation for this episode mentions a guy posting five different pay stubs from five different streaming services that add up to 13 cents. I mean, that is yeah. whatever the opposite of astronomical is. That that's, that's a horrifying thing. And I get that most of us are not, you know, most of us are not getting paid for things that we did ages ago. But also all of us are trying to look for passive income so we all should understand why this is important. One of the um, figures that I had seen online that was striking is, um, I forget who posted it now, but effectively they had played some bit part, didn't even have lines really on a network television show. And they had gotten paid more for that role than the lead actresses of Orange is the New Black, which was, the most popular show on Netflix for years. And like, that's sort of the 
discrepancy just in terms of like pay scale that we're talking about here. All of the success of, you know, Netflix's biggest shows, some of which are getting viewed by more people than Game of Thrones, have just a fraction of the sort of pay that anybody working on Game of Thrones is receiving. It's completely almost like a different industry. And that's kind of the way the studios have liked it, right? They enjoy that everything is moving to this new medium, which doesn't really cost more to produce or, you know, it's all the same product. It just goes in a different place at the end, but the labor that goes into it costs significantly less now for question mark. Yeah. We talked a little bit about that too, when we were talking about the um, IATSE strike or I don't, I don't remember if they actually went on strike or not. The IATSE strike of a few years ago where the uh, technical workers on film and television were also kind of in the same situation where because they worked on a streaming show, it was at, set as different pay grade than a network television show versus a movie show. Movie show. That's a thing. Streaming and, and these these shows have really figured out how to w- a way to produce something for zero cost so that they can make all of the money out of it. As Noah said many times, that's all any capitalist ever wants is they want a situation where they have all of the profit in the world and no costs whatsoever. And it's anathema to them that they actually have to pay people. So this is just another iteration of that. And they managed to hide all of this as a cultural question. So next time you're complaining about why everything is a reboot or a remake or whatever, hey, guess what? It's because you pay less for that. Under the outdated contracts that most of these units were operating that didn't really take streaming into account as comprehensively as they should have. So, for example, when we talked about Quibi, that genius venture, rest in pieces, 10-minute pieces that it had, you one of the reasons why Quibi was a disruptor, quote-unquote, for streaming was because it would allow you to chop episodes up into such small pieces that they operated on a different pay scale. Much the same way, if you continually reboot and remake shows, like Marvel is doing with Daredevil, where they're keeping the same lead actor and everything, but have changed enough of it that they can say it's a different show that just happens to have the same name, same character, same lead actor, those pay scales revert to zero. Those pay scales revert to season one. The original show made it to season three, which I think is when the like higher pay scales kick in. Lasted one, then they got rid of it, and now they're starting it again. A bunch of shows are also doing this, by the way, by sort of planting the seeds for spinoffs towards the end of their shows, because again, they can continue their sort of general writing team and general thrust and some of the same actors and so on, but they can again hire cheaper. So there, there's no incentive for anything long-lasting anymore. I, I think when you talk about Hollywood actors going on strike, you run into some of the um, same sort of um, cultural headwinds that you encounter when talking about, say, pro athletes going on strike, because the most public of these actors or athletes are making, you know, large sums of money. They are well remunerated for their work. 
but that is not the case for the majority of people in that industry. The CNN article has some helpful figures, I, I think, in terms of you know what is it that SAG-AFTRA members actually make. Quoting from the article, the minimum amount of money a performer must take home in one year to qualify for health insurance is $26,470. According to Sean Sharma, an actor and SAG-AFTRA board member, just 12.7% of SAG-AFTRA members qualify for the union's health plan. That is, you know, 83% of union members are taking home less than $26,000 a year from their work. You know, that is, in other words, acting is not their full-time job. They are, they have to have another job on top of that. It, I should say acting may well be a full-time job, but they need another job in order to make ends meet or they need some other circumstance. And so instead of thinking about the rock or Tom Cruise, like it's those people who should be at the forefront of our thinking on when we're talking about this strike. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned those two specific personalities for reasons that we'll get into in, in our second segment scene two, if you will, because they have both had outsized roles in this particular strike. But having said that, SAG-AFTRA also recently ran into financial troubles where they had to cut down some of their, without even renegotiating a contract, they had to sort of rescale how they were doing their health insurance and retirement plans. And I know that a number of the, so for example, there's like a, a retirement home for retired actors and so on. And they've had to cut down on some of those services because they can't cost that out anymore with the way the healthcare industry works in this country. And again, given the visibility and given how we tend to think of movie and TV actors as being well-paid, not theater actors, because the U.S. hasn't cared about that since the Civil War. But since, since we don't really, we think of them all as having it made in the same way that we think of pro athletes, it's an entirely different thought process because we tend to think of these people the same way that we think of pro athletes as having it made as not needing another job. And of course that's far from the truth. And in particular, a lot of the people who do have other jobs, I was just reading a Washington post article about a man named Josh hooks, who was finally starting to quote unquote, make it. He was finally starting to get roles in things that would actually pay residuals. Like I'm talking like a Hallmark movie, you know, things that old people watch on television. So it would actually pay something. And of course, this strike happened over his opposition. He says, you know, he he voted against it and hoped that it wouldn't happen. But he's been on the picket line and so on. And part of the reason why this has really screwed him over is because one of his survival jobs, one of his other gigs, is taping auditions for actors who now can't audition. So he has been denied multiple income streams because of the AMPTP, the mountainous pile of toilet paper refusing to pay actors and writers what they're due uh, to be clear to our listeners amtpt easy for me to say is the association of movie and television producers something along those lines it's the studio conglomerate that... and television producers okay. and it's an alliance 
Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. See, okay. My acronym's a whole lot better. Yeah. It's the other side of the table in these collective bargaining agreements from SAG-AFTRA or from the WGA. I, I think another thing that you encounter is people have weird ideas about what a job is. Like, people, when you tell people you're an actor... Their next question is, okay, what's your real job? Like, there's this idea that if you are engaged in creative labor, writing for movies, you know, acting in the theater, that that is not a job. That is something other than work. But it very much is work. It is arduous. It is time-consuming. It is something that these people do for money to put food on the table. And necessarily these assumptions about what it is to have a, quote, real job mean that you're also saying, well, okay, you don't deserve X, Y, and Z. You're just acting. You're not doing something real. Get a real job. And I think, you know, that's something very harmful and that, like, we need to broaden our understanding of what a job is and can be. You don't have to have a hard hat to have a job. See, this is this is interesting to me because over the past couple of years with the pandemic going on, we have had to have this debate in a million different ways because of the definition of essential worker and who got to work in uh, from home versus who was working in person and all that sort of thing. And certainly there were people like if you were operating a lathe as, as the main thing you were doing or if you were selling HVAC or whatever, you were probably in person through the pandemic. But then there were also service workers, which the majority of America continues to not consider a real job, despite the fact that they were the way that a bunch of middle class and rich people were getting their food, their liquor, their movies, every other form of product and entertainment during the pandemic. So they could sit at home and actually throw parties where they invited people and did super spreader events anyway. It didn't matter. And creative labor, actors, writers we're not putting directors in this because they voted to agree with the mountainous pile of toilet paper. Clearly directors are bosses that they, they said so themselves by doing that. They could have had solidarity, but they didn't. So they are sort of at the peak of this because this country doesn't respect creative labor at all. They think that movies just pop out like Athena fully formed out of the poster, essentially. And they, it, it doesn't occur to people that there is work that goes into these things because, well, for the same reason that every time you take some cantankerous boomer to a museum, they look at an abstract painting, oh, well, my four-year-old could do that. There, there's a refusal to engage with the spirit and the soul of a project. And I would liken that to the fact that at the same time, not to be too tangential, but we also have this like incredible resistance to real criticism of film or television or any of those things, most people cannot deal with having their favorite movies or shows or whatever talked about in any serious way because as a culture, we don't take them seriously. And now we are seeing the results of that because I think right now, you know, we're living in the, in the aftermath of Barbenheimer. It's, it's their world and we're just living in it right now. And the amount to which, the level to which people didn't want to engage with anything that had to do with discourse around 
not engaging with discourse on the Barbie movie, whatever. Not engaging with the discourse around the very real dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan so that you could enjoy your movie about uh, with with Killian Murphy looking great and in the into the camera and so on. That that to me is very reflective of where we're at in terms of this country's appreciation of art. But you know who does really appreciate art? It's um, Bob Iger and um, David Zaslav. We talked a bit about David Zaslav in our episode about the writer strike. He had some noxious things to say about when he expected them to return to work and why. Um, Bob Iger is quoted in this CNN article. I think it is. Um, give me a second. Saying that the actor's demands are just not realistic. Bob Iger is also quoted in the CNN article as having a total pay that may reach $31 million per year. So realism, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. I did really enjoy it when Zaslav called all like actors and directors content creators. That was pretty funny. Because Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and somebody else, I can't remember who, they were like, um... It was Martin Scorsese, in case you were Scorsese, that guy, I've heard of him. They had to partner up and find a way to save uh, Turner Classic Movies, was it? From from getting just completely bodied. Because David Saslev treats actors, writers, even directors, the way that you or I treat like a KitchenAid attachment. Can you imagine Orson Welles being called a content creator to his face? Orson Welles by now would have probably strapped a bomb to his chest and run into like the Warner Brothers office building. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> different different era of union negotiations, certainly. <laughs> This article also uh, notes that Netflix's co-CEOs Ted Sarandos and Greg Peters made $50 million and $28 million, respectively, in 2022. Uh, the article does not mention David Zaslav's salary because CNN is owned by Warner Brothers. I'm going to go out on a limb here. People may or may not know this. Ronald Reagan began his political career as the president of the Screen Actors Guild before the murder with AFTRA. And, of course, Ronald Reagan, famously just a lovely person that no one ever hated. No problem. Was Yeah, exactly. No one ever had a problem with him, just completely unproblematic and, and never canceled. But Probably because of his wife. Everybody loved her. That's, yeah, yeah. She had, she had a very specific set of skills. Cannot get into this. <laughs> but where I'm going with this is that, famously, he was... He essentially McCarthy'd his own union. And I think what you're seeing is for a very long time, you could be a Writers uh, Guild of America, Directors Guild of America, SAG, AFTRA. You could be a loudmouth in one of those unions and be a Republican, and that was fine. Not too, not too long ago, the president of... I, I don't remember if he lasted after the merger, but not too long ago, the president of SAG was Ned Vaughn, who was a Republican but was generally regarded as a very good negotiator. And I think for a long time, the studios were okay with that and were okay sort of negotiating on a remotely fair basis because they knew that there was representation on the other side. But more and more, most actors, because they're making no money, 
because they are being forced to go hungry because they're not getting health insurance and all that are turning politically left. And they are high visibility people who can put their message in front of all of us, especially through something like a strike. And the result of that is, well, the studios aren't going to play very fair anymore. Not that they ever did, but they're going to be especially destructive now. I think there's also a point that could be made about how we're further removed from the era of Hollywood blacklists and, you know, the expulsion of communists from the unions in Hollywood and in every union in America. But that's probably too deep a subject for this segment. Um, We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about the tactics that each side has taken and has available to them in what could be a protracted labor battle. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Scene two, take one. And Lou. Hey guys, if this takes more than one take, I'm, no, I'm out. In our first segment today, we talked about the SAG after strike, the strike by Hollywood actors against the movie and TV studios. And in this segment, I want to get into, you know, this tactics that we might see employed over the course of this strike. As of right now, there's no real sign that this is going to be a short strike. I I think for both sides, there's a sense that you won't really feel the effects of this, of lost labor or lost wages until the fall, until the fall lineup is full of reality TV garbage and, you know, maybe they turn up something using chat GPT. God, I hope so, just to see what that could possibly dredge up. And, you know, in the words of one unnamed movie executive, according to Deadline, the exec said, the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. Which really, like lays out the argument pretty clearly here. It really makes the case that the studios have no interest in making a counter offer or making a, an attempt at good faith negotiation. They're just going to try to wait out actors and writers ability to not work, which is, you know, bad. Yeah. I feel like this somewhat dovetails with the way that, American history is increasingly being taught, especially in states under control uh, of people like Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott, where, you know, we learned about people like this. We called them robber barons. These are supposed to be the people that we're better than. 
And actually, no, these are exactly the same people with exactly the same thought process on labor, exactly the same cruelty in their souls. And they deserve exactly the same amount of scorn. And frankly, they're all going to hell one day. I think it's particularly interesting that in the case of this unnamed movie executive where the studios, the the rest of the mountainous pile of toilet paper felt the need to kind of like close ranks and say, actually, no, 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 they didn't mean that. No, they had to say that for about 24 hours and then they went right back to doing other skullduggery. But at least one person thinks that that is that was Bob Iger getting caught off guard because Ron Perman recorded a video that I can't quote in any of its details <laughs> without running us a follow of the FCC, but which he said, you better be careful because there are lots of ways to lose a house and said, while you're sitting there earning $27 million, which is a very specific shot at Bob Iger's reported salary for creating nothing. And I think that's the important bit to zero in on. These people make nothing. If you got rid of Bob Iger and Ted Sarandos and David Saslov and the rest of these people, the movie industry, such as it is, would turn on. Actors and writers would still work. There would, I feel like I'm getting into, uh, I guess we'd have to call it the denouement part of this, but it would still exist. These people are useless. All they are there for is to glad hand and run meetings and spend time on the toilet looking at their phone. That's what CEOs do. They add no value to any of these companies. Bob Iger specifically, I might be wrong about this, but correct uh, and correct me if I am, but didn't he have to come back to being Disney CEO? He left for a minute and then whoever was there got in so much trouble that they begged for him to come back. Yeah, I I don't remember the exact details, but I'm going to spout off about it anyways. I, if I remember right. Hell yeah. <laughs> King. Um, right there. If I, if I remember right, that like middle CEO, the um, boy, it would be really cool if I remembered the president between Grover Cleveland's terms. That guy's t- uh, time. As, okay. Uh, that guy's time as Disney CEO coincided with um, Ron DeSantis going directly after Disney. And so I. I think Iger might have been brought up, brought back to sort of smooth those waters, perhaps, you know. Yeah, that's ringing a bell. Yeah, that that can't be right. I was told that Disney was being very brave and standing up to Ron DeSantis, but as what you seem to be telling me is that actually they're a bunch of cowards. It is also possible that I do not know what I'm talking about, so bear that in mind. Continuing on to something that I'm a little more sure of. Noah, you talked about uh, how we learn about robber barons in, you know, history class and whatnot. And, you know, we do, and we learn some of their names, but I don't think that, like, your basic high school history class gives an appreciation for just how direct and violent those labor struggles were. Like, the Ford massacre is not something that comes up in your high school history class. It the battle at Blair Mountain doesn't get a mention in your textbook. So in some ways, yes, we did learn about these people, but we don't really learn the full picture of why they were so reviled and the force and violence that it took in order to wrest a tiny bit of power away from them by the organized labor movement. 
Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Uh, and I do think that I received an uncommonly <laughs> balanced education in this area of American history, because I think I've mentioned this before on Punching Out, but my U.S. history teacher was a French woman during the Iraq War. So she had every reason to not put up with the textbooks Very crap. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would heavily recommend that. If if that's that that was the best way to be taught that subject. But here's the thing, right? We talked in the last segment in scene one about all of the visibility enjoyed by these professionals. Uh, or at least the actors, not the writers so much. Also, it's worth mentioning, by the way, the writers are about 11,000 members, if I remember correctly. That's that's the labor unit there. The SAG-AFTRA literally makes that tenfold. It's about 126,000 members. So it, it massively expands the body of workers striking. Second, that visibility can be, can cut both ways. Because we talked off air before we started recording about how right now, this is the rare strike where its labor actions are not going to be immediately felt. So right now, for example, if this were John Deere, this is where the accountants would be trying to run the factory machines. And unfortunately for them getting injured, this is where if it's, you know, a, a Mm-hmm. This is where Bob Iger would be strapping on a motion sensor suit so he can play Ant-Man. No, just, I'm trying to make it sound like... I mean, that, that's a great idea. I would love that. I love that idea so much. That's so good. Just recast all of the, all of the MCU with movie executives. It can't, it can't look worse than some of the recent movies have. So. True. There, there's a real low bar. Maybe that was the game all along. Oh my god, they have to like put on the cat suits that all the women have to wear. It would be great. It would be fantastic. I cannot wait. Anyway. <laughs> Point being, in the case of the movie industry, this is going to be felt down the line when movies start you know, not coming out on time. I also think that one of the reasons why people are willing to right now say that they're completely on the side of the writers or the actors is because it's not costing them entertainment right now. Again, we live in, shall we say, the uh, the shockwave of Barbenheimer right now. There's already corporate double features they're trying to invent, like Saw Patrol is a thing. Uh, I don't, don't like understand. that. No, it's hateful uh, and obviously fake. It, it's ginned up. But they're trying to create all these things, I think, to bank as much as they can because that money is mostly going to go into the studio's pockets. And then when the movies dry up, I don't think people are going to be blaming the studios for that because we've seen from the way that pro athletes handle these things or are asked to handle these things from the previous writer strike in 2007, we've seen how people handle high visibility jobs, jobs that they don't consider real like creative labor or like playing a quote 72 point air quotes playing a kid's game. We've seen how they handle it when those people want to be paid what they're worth. They don't handle it well. Now I think they are going, I think people are going to be better because we're more aware of the dire situation that so many actors and writers find themselves in. But I also think that the American need for like, give me my treats 
is so extreme. And everyone, again, after the last few years, everyone has this weird ability to look past it when it's their own needs at stake. When they when they want things, suddenly it's okay to, you know, break ranks, to scab, to cross the picket line. Everybody's looking for the exception that makes it okay for them not to have to think. And I think that's what the studios are banking on. And then we can talk about the more specific tactics that they're using to increase the union's fatigue until that can happen. Yeah. Before we get to the point where actors and writers are losing their homes or uh, executives are having their homes lost through mysterious means, uh, Hellboy did not specify. There are pettier and smaller steps that could take to escalate this fight. One very petty thing is how NBC Universal had illegally trimmed the trees in front of their property, which had been providing shade to the writers picketing in front of their studios. They were fined $250 for violating California's tree law by the city of Los Angeles, which um, should teach them not to do that again. Which the controller, Kenneth Mejia, made the explicit point that that's what they can find. Like that's, again, because we have laws that were passed in like 1962, you know, they don't control for inflation somehow. Weird how that happens. So he said, you know, in a particularly severe case, they could ask them to plant more trees. And these trees are supposed to rebound in six to 12 months, by which point I'm sure the studios expect the strike to still be ongoing. They definitely are definitely okay with that happening after not filing a permit and breaking a bunch of laws that if you or I did that would be a huge problem. It might lead to police power being used on us and might lead to us. What's one of those terms they like to use uh, on, on those like animal TikToks being unsubscribed from life by a, by a cop whose body camera is off. That could happen. But it's Disney. I'm 30. And Why do you Amazon. think I know what terms on TikTok are? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I forgot I'm serious. You're the senior teen correspondent. Yeah, you're good point. Either way, point being. <laughs> we, of course, don't know why he's the st- senior teen correspondent. Just yeah, that absolutely. he is. Mysterious. It, it's, listen, it's not a great job, but somebody's got to do it. Okay. <laughs> Those are the workers of the future. Boy, are they. (laughs) Yeah. In the present. Good point. Speaking of workers of the future, I guess, we talked a bit in the first segment about how studios had been scanning background actors' faces for perpetual use of their likeness, in return for which they gave those actors $200, which can be exchanged for, you know, goods and services. But short of filling our TVs with AI-generated background actors for the foreseeable future, it seems more likely that studios are going to turn to reality television, which they relied on heavily during the 2007 writer's strike, and you know, also foreign productions. I saw a thing recently about Netflix touting just how much uh, Korean content they're going to have this fall, which, you know, all well and good to be celebrating uh, the art from another country and whatnot. But 
it should be noted that those actors are not on strike. Those writers are not on strike. You know, it is a clearly a way of evading some of the impact of having no workers in your own country, um, which is a tactic used by every industry, basically. And let's be clear, too. Netflix does not treat those industries any better. They definitely treat them probably worse in some cases, like the actors of Squid Games famously got very little money for for the work they did for Netflix. And, the, you know, personally, on a personal note, I do watch a lot of K-dramas, and I do watch a lot of K-dramas on Netflix. And so this isn't necessarily a good thing that, that they're owning so much and, and investing so much in foreign media just for the sake of those foreign media. media. RRR, that... Bollywood hit when it was translated into English for American audiences. Famously, they didn't use the original languages. They dubbed it in all cases before releasing on uh, in the U.S. So, like these are not well treated industries, and they are they are yeah very very rife with abuse. To quote a bit from a Washington Post article on the subject um, headline. Um, Asian filmmakers watch Hollywood strikes with hope and frustration. It's written by Andrew Jiang and Karishma Marotra, uh, July 21st. Netflix usually outsources Korean production to local studios, unlike in the United States. This means that most South Korean writers, actors, directors, and set staff, who on paper work for the studios and not Netflix, normally don't get paid directly by Netflix. The streaming company has no legal obligation to sit down at the negotiating table to discuss wages or residual payments the way they do with their unionized actors here. That's great. So happy for Netflix. They deserve all they deserve to keep all of that money because they make so much stuff. I mean, all all of the products in my home are Netflix. Everything I own is Netflix. Netflix rules everything around me. I'm beginning to think they should just make subcontracting illegal. <sighs> uh, having thought about that for ten seconds, I can see no downside. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> We enact it to be so. The other thing I wanted to get to in this segment is a, a bit of a, um, I guess, a debate that's been going on in public uh, between SAG-AFTRA has cleared for production several movies and um, you know productions by Studio A24, which are operating under the terms that were set out under the old contract, the one that expired. Uh, last month um, with, you know, all of the major studios. A24 is continuing to abide by the terms set out in in that contract. And so the unions are okay with allowing actors and writers to help in those productions. Nevertheless, there are actors who have spoken publicly about not feeling comfortable doing that because despite having the okay from the union, they are at the end of the day providing content that will be, you know, helping to hold over the studios, hold over Netflix through the fall and winter to come. And I'm not really sure how to square that debate. It is 
in some sense unsquareable and the union i think as an outsider obviously i don't want to tell workers what to do it does feel like a weakening of the union's position number one a24 it's not like they are their own distributor most of the time they are distributing through other distributors whatever many of whom are members of the mountainous pile of toilet paper and as a result you are going to be providing things for amazon or netflix or whatever to say look we've got the new a24 movie if they had their own streaming service and that's where they were putting anything well then they would be members of the amptp and we'd be yelling at them too so it would be a different world entirely the other thing that i think is important when i saw this reported it was reported as if A24 had agreed to the conditions that SAG-AFTRA wanted in the new contract, which is not the case. It's important to note that what A24 is agreeing to do is simply to abide by the contract language that exists already, which is, as we have just discussed, terrible for workers. It's already bad. In the case of A24, it's less bad because they make movies the traditional way and all of that. So, you know, actors have a prayer of getting paid based off of that. Uh, And then the third prong, by the way, I should mention, is that for some of these, the projects are already in production or have already wrapped. But what this allows is for stars to promote those movies if they've been given a waiver. So, for example, you may have seen that Marvel had to pull out of San Diego Comic-Con. Good riddance. They had to do that because none of their actors, being union members, are allowed to promote their movies. You may have seen that Barbie director Greta Gerwig uh, was invited to a Barbie screening and showed up uh, to answer questions about the movie and promote the movie and so on. And that was scabbing because she wrote the movie and she's a WGA member. So she's technically on strike right now. Not technically. She is on strike right now. So these are the things that are kind of difficult to deal with in the moment. And I think by granting the waivers that takes out, this is like when the NFL players in 87 or whatever it was sort of allowed some guys to go back and scab because they had injuries that needed treatment and so on that gave team owners leverage that they didn't have before. It sucks. And I can see why they think it's necessary, but it's hard not to see it as a weakening of the position And then you've got guys like Tom Cruise wedging themselves in there and saying, I want to release my next action palooza uh, that is definitely not A24, definitely not indie film, and definitely not going to abide by this contract. I want to be able to promote this and release all my movies and everything. And now, you know, like Bob Odenkirk has to go out there and be like, do you know what a strike is, Tom? Which I'm sure they don't cover in Dianetics, so he probably doesn't know anyway. Just to put some more names and faces on this debate, this is an article from AV Club. Uh, The fight over movies getting permission to film during the strike is getting messy. It cites um, Viola Davis is stepping back from her new movie, G20, which she's producing and starring in for A24. A lot of alphanumerics there. And, you know, that movie was one of the ones that had been given clearance by SAG-AFTRA to go ahead, but Viola Davis did not feel comfortable doing so. Similarly, the article cites Sarah Silverman, who said in an Instagram post some things that cannot be repeated on the radio. 
and equated these sorts of agreements to scab work effectively, you know, making just the same argument that you had, Noah. I guess remains to be seen as of this recording how all this will shake out and if any of these A24 movies will end up actually like smooth sailing through the strike without, you know, workers having second thoughts. You know, just in the act of recording this, we are likely causing something to be released in the news between now and when mm-hmm. this airs. Always also, happens. nothing against Viola Davis, but having read the plot summary of what that movie is, they can go ahead and just never release it. It's fine. We will not miss it. It, it looks like a has-fallen movie with the serial numbers filed off. It's okay. We don't need any more of those. <laughs> Perhaps something we do need here is a break. And when we come back, we can wrap up this shoot with a um, segment on how to make a movie industry that uh, treats its workers fairly. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Lights, camera, labor action. And Lou. Hey, guys. We've been talking in our first two segments today about the SAG-AFTRA strike that is ongoing between Hollywood actors and movie and TV studios. As usual, I'm punching out. We're going to use this third segment to try and chart a uh, course to a better future. You know, what would a movie industry that does not exploit its workers and writers and uh, crew members look like? How would that happen? What would that take? So unironically, I really liked Noah's idea from earlier this episode about eliminating subcontracting. I have a feeling that if studios and and so many other industries were actually responsible for the, the labor that they're using, we would have a much more responsive in economy and that you, there's no hidden elements and there's there's not so many layers of exploitation. You're dealing with directly the people who are using your your labor. And I think that could go a long way to, to helping. It, it won't solve everything, but it would remove a layer of obscurity and give you visibility in a way that like people working in tech who are being subcontracted out, they don't have that that level of influence and they don't have that level of visibility with the people who are using their labor. Yeah, I suggested that one mostly in jest, but it is true actually that much of, many of the problems with the modern economy can be traced back to the fact that by allowing people to be independent 72 point air quote contractors or by allowing massive industries to just subcontract everything or outsource everything, we created a layer of plausible deniability for people who don't deserve it and shouldn't have it because they have the money to deal with these problems. Whether you're Netflix or Uber or ran out of that one real fast. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's kind of hard to say that in terms of movies specifically, because this is, except for the weird time delay, like where something being produced now is not going to hit audiences for months from now, possibly years in some cases, you know, especially for lower paid actors and and people who are trying to break into the industry. They are working for a a small studio that could be owned by a larger studio that could be owned by a parent company that could be owned by the five or six total companies that there are that exist and own everything else in the entertainment industry, which is a second thing that we should change is we need to dissolve all of those and start from scratch. That's fine. But genuinely we need to reduce the power and influence that the very few have over the entire industry. Which is something that we've already had to deal with. Like the studio system dominated Hollywood for something like, you know, the twenties through ooh, about the late fifties, sixties kind of thing, when it finally started to break up a little bit. And the only studio that was remotely worth its salt in any of those years was United Artists, because it's called United Artists. Hint, it was founded by actors to help actors have to to give a voice to movie professionals within the industry. And then that one also, along with SAG, along with all these other organizations, fell prey to, you know, McCarthyism and the Red Scare and all of that sort of thing. And it tamped down how loud actors were willing to be about their labor politics. Now that we're encountering a very similar environment, I mean, part of the problem in, in deciding on a solution is that there is a solution on the table. It's called the sag aftras terms. And the studios, if they agreed to it, would solve a lot of this problem. But they're not going to. So instead, we have to come up with these solutions that seem not not to hand it to David Saslov, because you never have to do that, but seem blatantly unrealistic because they've never happened before. But yeah, the mountainous pile of toilet paper is a cartel on its face. It should be dismantled. If we had a country that took antitrust issues remotely seriously, it would be gone. And all of these people would be a lot less rich, which is why it's not happening. If we had a country that made sense, we might have an actual robust public broadcasting system that had something that could fund, you know, public films like happened during the New Deal where there were federal theater projects and writers projects that helped keep people who did creative labor employed. But we have a country that doesn't respect creative labor. And by the way, if you want to see how the future of that goes, you should look at what Canada is doing right now, because they're having a huge debate about the role of the Canadian broadcasting channel. Why? Because of course the right wing over there is convinced that the CBC is biased against them. Because when you're a narrow minded piece of crap, people who are creative and have a little bit more to them, tend to not like you very much. That that seems to happen a lot. I wonder what that might be. You talked about the terms SAG-AFTRA has set out and, they're, and they've been public about what they've been asking for. It occurred to me that we haven't really talked about just what they've been asking for. We've talked about the problems the industry faces and you know the future that AMPTP envisions, but... To give an example of something that SAG-AFTRA has asked for in the new collective bargaining agreement, increasing fines on late payments because the studios are often late with their payments to the actors, which 
must be like maddening, right? Because you've put in the work and you don't know when you're getting paid. It adds to the uncertainty of what is already an industry that is more uncertain than most. You know, you might be working on a project for five months and then not be sure when your next paying gig will come from. And that again gets back to the question of residuals, right? In cutting off residuals effectively from streaming shows, the studios have made acting a significantly more precarious job than it had been under the old status quo pre-streaming. And as always, when workers are in precarious positions, when they can't have steady income, you know, predictable income, they are more vulnerable to whatever conditions that their bosses want to impose on them. That is true in Hollywood. That's true in the industry you work in. That's, that's a basic fact. So just reducing that vulnerability is something that we should strive towards for workers everywhere. At the end of the day, you can create a movie industry that is entirely based on AI and computer generated, whatever you could do that. But as a culture, if this, if movies are a reflection of what we want to see in our culture, that's a very bad sign that it will only reflect the vision of wealthy white cis male for the most part viewpoints and the same reason that a lot of corporations get into diverse voices isn't because they agree with them but it's because somebody else will so by refusing to listen to the people making these films and shows and stories and culture, they are cutting themselves off from growth, from being part of that narrative because somebody else will do that and they will do it better. And I think it's incredibly short-sighted of the movie studios to not want to work with actors and rather say we own you outright in perpetuity yeah that's uh, very well put and the note on which we will end today's episode for this week i'm ryan i'm lou that's a wrap on punching out You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.